Chapter Eleven of the Countess of Charny by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. In the morning, the early sunbeams shone on two horsemen riding at a walking pace along the deserted waterside by the Tuileries. They were Colonel Mandat and his aide. At one a.m., he was summoned to the city hall and refused to go. But on the order being renewed more peremptorily at two, attorney Roederer said to him, "'Mark, Colonel, that under the law the commander of the National Guard is to obey the city government.' He decided to go, ignorant of two things. In the first place, forty-seven sections of the forty-eight had joined to the town rulers each three commissioners, with orders to work with the officials and, quote, "'Save the country.' Mandat expected to see the old board as before, and not at all, to behold a hundred and forty-one fresh faces. Again, he had no idea of the order from this same board to clear the new bridge of cannon and vacate St. John's Arcade, an order so important that Danton and Manuel personally had superintended its execution. Consequently, on reaching the Pont Neuf, Manda was stupefied to find it utterly deserted. He stopped and sent his aide to scout. In ten minutes this officer returned with the word that he saw no guns or national guards, while the neighborhood was as lonesome as the bridge. Manda continued his way, though he perhaps ought to have gone back to the palace. But men, like things, must wend whither their destiny impels. Proportionably to his approach to the city hall, he seemed to enter into liveliness. In the same way as the blood in some organizations leaves the extremities cold and pale on rushing back to fortify the heart, so all the movement and heat, the revolution in short, was around the city hall, the seat of popular life, the heart of that great body Paris. He stopped to send his officer to the Arcade. But the National Guard had been withdrawn from there, too. He wanted to retrace his steps, but the crowd had packed in behind him, and he was carried like a waif on the wave, up the hall steps. "'Stay here,' he said to his follower. "'And if evil befalls me, run and tell them at the palace.' Manda yielded to the mob and was floated into the grand hall where he met strange and stern faces. It was the insurrection complete, demanding an account of the conduct of this man, who had not only tried to crush it in its development, but to strangle it in its birth. One of the members of the commune, the dread body which was to stifle the assembly and struggle with the convention, advanced and in the general's name asked, by whose order did you double the palace guard? The mayor of Paris. Show that order. I left it at the Tuileries, so that it might be carried out during my absence. Why did you order out the cannon? Because I set the battalion on the march, and the field pieces move with the regiment. Where is Petion? He was at the palace when I last saw him. A prisoner? No, he was strolling about the gardens. 
the interrogation was interrupted here by a new member bringing an unsealed letter of which he asked leave to make communication Munda had no need to do more than cast a glance on this note to acknowledge that he was lost he recognized his own writing it was his order to the commanding officer at st john's arcade sent at one in the morning for him to attack in the rear the mob making for the palace while the battalion on newbridge attacked it in flank this order had fallen into the commune's hands after the dismissal of the soldiers the examination was over for what could be more damning than this letter in any admissions of the accused the council decided that mandat should be imprisoned in the abbey the tale goes that the chairman of the board in saying remove the prisoner made a sweep of the hand edge downward like chopping with an axe as the guillotine was not in use then it must have been an arranged sign perhaps by the invisibles whose grand copt had divined that instrument at all events the results showed that the sign was taken to imply death hardly had mandat gone down three of the city steps before a pistol shot shattered his skull at the very instant when his son ran toward him three years before the same reception had met flacella mandat was only wounded but as he rose he fell again with a score of pike wounds the boy held out his hands and wailed for his father but none paid any heed to him presently in the bloody ring where bare arms plunged amid flashing pikes and sword a head was seen to surge up detached from the trunk the boy swooned the aide-de-camp galloped back to the tuileries to report what he had witnessed the murderers went off in two gangs one took the body to the river to throw it in the other carried the head through the streets this was going on at four in the morning let us proceed the aide to the tuileries and see what was happening having confessed and made easy about matters since his conscience was tranquilized the king unable to resist the cravings of nature went to bed but we must say that he lay down dressed on the alarm bells ringing more loudly and the roll of the drums beating the reveille, he was roused. Colonel Chesney, to whom Mandat had left his powers, awoke the monarch to have him address the National Guards, and by his presence and some timely words revive their enthusiasm. The king rose but half awake, dull and staggering. He was wearing a powdered wig, and he had flattened all the side he had lain upon the hairdresser could not be found so he had to go out with the wig out of trim notified that the king was going to show himself to the defenders the queen ran out from the council hall where she was in contrast with the poor sovereign whose dim sight sought no one's glance whose mouth muscles were flabby and palpitating with involuntary twitches while his violet coat suggested he was wearing mourning for majesty the queen was burning with fever, although pale. Her eyes were red, though dry. She kept close to this phantom of monarchy, who came out in the day instead of midnight with owlish blinking eyes. She hoped to inspire him with her overflow of life, strength, and courage. All went well enough while this exhibition was in the rooms, though the National Guards mixed in with noblemen, 
seeing their ruler close to this poor flaccid heavy man who had so badly failed on a similar occasion at varennes wondered if this really was the monarch whose poetical legend the women and the priests were already beginning to weave this was not the one they had expected to see the aged duke of mailly with one of those good intentions destined to be another paving-stone for down below drew his rapier and sinking down at the foot of the king vowed in a quavering voice to die he and the old nobility which he represented for the grandson of henry the fourth here were two blunders the national guards had no great sympathy for the old nobility and they were not here to defend the descendant of henry the fourth but the constitutional king so in reply to a few shouts of hail to the king cheers for the nation burst forth on all sides something to make up for this coolness was sought the king was urged to go down into the royal yard alas the poor potentate had no will of his own disturbed at his meals and cheated with only one hour's sleep instead of seven he was but an automaton receiving impetus from outside its material nature who gave this impetus the queen a woman of nerve who had neither slept nor eaten some unhappy characters fail in all they undertake when circumstances are beyond their level instead of attracting dissenters louis the sixteenth in going up to them seemed expressly made to show how little glamour majesty can lend a man who has no genius or strength of mind here as in the rooms when the royalists managed to get up a shout of long live the king an immense hurrah for the nation replied to them the royalists being dull enough to persist the patriots overwhelmed them with no 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 other ruler than the nation and the king almost supplicating added yes my sons the nation and the monarch make but one henceforward bring the prince whispered marie antoinette to princess elizabeth perhaps the sight of a child may touch them while they were looking for the dauphin the king continued the sad review the bad idea struck him to appeal to the artillerists who were mainly republicans if the king had the gift of speech-making he might have forced the men to listen to him though their belief led them astray for it would have been a daring step and it might have helped him to face the cannon but there was nothing exhilarating in his words or gesture he stammered the royalists tried to cover his stammerings with the luckless hail of long live the king already twice a failure and it nearly brought about a collision some cannoneers left their places and rushed over to the king threatening him with their fists and saying do you think that we will shoot down our brothers to defend a traitor like you the queen drew the king back here comes the dauphin called out voices long live the hope of the realm nobody took up the cry the poor boy had come in at the wrong time as theatrical language says he had missed his cue the king went back into the palace a downright retreat almost a flight when he got to his private rooms he dropped puffing and blowing into an easy chair stopping by the door 
the queen looked round for some support. She spied Charny, standing up by the door of her own rooms, and she went over to him. Oh, all is lost, she moaned. I am afraid so, my lady, replied the life guardsman. Can we not still flee? It is too late. What is left for us to do, then? We can but die, responded Charny, bowing. The queen heaved a sigh and went into her own rooms. End of chapter 11 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia